Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Milton Metz studio and I use Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the WFIU WTIU news team. Co-hosting with me today is News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. This week we're talking about the new coronavirus, how concerned people should be, and ways to stay healthy. We have four guests with us. Three are in the studio and one's joining us by phone in the studio. We have John Parrish Sproul, who's the Director of Global Health Communication and Resource Center and Professor of Communication Studies at IUPUI. Graham McKean, who's an Assistant University Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. And Tom, Dr. Tom Rismalis, who's an, uh, an MD with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians, and he specializes in infectious disease. And joining us from Australia this morning is David Audrich, who is the 2019-2020 Overseas Study Advisory Council uh, member and the distinguished professor, and a distinguished professor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. So I want to thank all of our guests for joining us. And if you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome to everybody. Thanks for being here. I've asked all of our guests. I'm going to start with John first from uh, IUPUI and, and just ask about the sort of the depth and the urgency of this issue, how much time have you been spending on it, and, and how concerned should people be? John? Well, where, how concerned you should be probably depends on where you're situated on the globe right now. Certainly, it's a big concern whenever we have a, a, a new virus, which this is a novel uh, coronavirus uh, outbreak, because there's so many unanswered questions. We don't know how fast it spreads. We don't know where all it has already spread. And so... We put everybody on alert so that we can uh, tr- achieve the goal of containment and hoping to to contain it and well it up and, and cause it to, to end. It's and so it, the uh, Director General Tedros from WHO was highly complimentary of the Chinese for how they responded when once they noticed a cluster of pneumonia cases and they realized it was in a city that was a transportation hub. They canceled lots of celebrations. They canceled lots of travel to and from the city and essentially quarantined it. But, of course, by then a lot of people had already traveled to other countries. And so places like the United States and France and so forth have, uh, do have cases of coronavirus. And we do have at least one case in the United States of transmission from person to person that has occurred from to for people who haven't been to China. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we don't have uh, we have one possible case in Indiana that we know of, but we don't have any others in Indiana. And so uh, the threat uh, to the local citizens is fairly low, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be alert and be concerned. Okay, Graham, I would echo those exact uh, sentiments uh, that John had. I mean, it's definitely time for being more alert and more vigilant um, because of this uh, novel virus and all the things we're learning from it. In terms of, of how it's been for us personally, I mean, this is uh, pretty much all I've been doing for the last two weeks. And, and seeing uh, the blip come across, we, you know, public health is all about um, conducting surveillance. And that's one of the, the biggest things that we can do, especially in a global world when it comes to communicable and, and infectious disease. And so seeing this little blip um, on our epidemiological exchange network uh, over the holiday about an unknown pneumonia uh, of unknown source potentially from an animal market really seeming initially that it was pretty much strictly animal to human transmission that piques your interest and so we were watching that it just a personal interest as well um, but but continuing to watch that and see that escalate it's, it's pretty much been in the forefront um, really since I got back in the office on January 6th and then uh, just about a week later um, hearing the reports of cases quadrupling 
the confirmation of human-to-human transmission, starting to see some of these imported cases. Um, that's when our role at public health, at least within the Indiana University system, was to alert our, our administration. Not a couple hours after sending that message uh, to the appropriate folks, uh, we had our first imported case in Washington State. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since then, which now feels about uh, 30 days ago, I think that was only two weeks ago, um, we've been watching this very intensely. And so, yeah, we do need to be alert. Um, the, again, the, the immediate risk uh, is, is low to Indiana and, and to Bloomington, to Monroe County, and Indiana University. Uh, but we need to be on that heightened, vigilant alert at any time um, when it's cold and flu season. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, you know, 15 million estimated cases so far of the flu this year. Uh, it's neurovirus season as well. And so that's kind of always our messaging in public health during this time of year. And so at this time, that, that, that continues uh, regardless of, of what's going on. But uh, in addition to that, as you said, there's so many unknowns. And so the more we can learn about it, um, and, and honestly, that's maybe one of the benefits of having cases here locally is now we can study it ourselves. When I say locally, I mean in the United States. So now we can study that ourselves, and that kind of help us uh, maybe develop treatments and, and options and learn things about it. I think the biggest news um, today, just in the last hour or so, was the, the head infectious disease doctor at the NIH confirming, uh, based on that New England Journal of Medicine article that came out last night, that uh, this can be uh, infectious prior to, to symptom onset. Mm-hmm. And so that really changes the game in terms of surveillance and contact tracing and really doing the, the epidemiological groundwork. Uh, to thwart that. And that can be done, uh, but, um, you know, I'm expecting uh, additional guidance from the CDC to help us uh, thwart that outbreak here in the, in the country. So that's a lot to unpack. And uh, Dr. Thomas Mollis is here. He's uh, an MD who specializes in infectious disease. So, you know, what's all that mean to you and to your patients? Well, from a, um, from a practical standpoint, we've dealt with these kinds of issues before. I mean, if you think back over the past what, 18 years or so, we've had um, SARS, MERS, Zika, Ebola, and this novel coronavirus, and many of the public health measures that we would consider, isolating patients, quarantine, treatment, testing, uh, use of resources, uh, the things we're considering today are similar to what we've considered in the past. What we need is more information that lets us know how to adapt what we've worked on in the past to this particular episode. Um, the things that I get concerned about are transmission, how readily is it transmitted, and this information that it can, might be transmitted asymptomatically or is, mm-hmm. or is transmitted asymptomatically is big because with previous episodes like SARS, we could isolate people who are symptomatic. Now we have to think about what do we do about people who are just contacts. And so that transmission is is key. The preliminary data I've seen suggests that the virus is more transmissible than, let's say, the flu, but less transmissible to unvaccinated people than, say, would be whooping cough or something like that. So mm-hmm. that's significant. That has epidemic potential. Um, and then there's the question of severity. Well, how severe is it? If it's the same as a common cold, we don't have so much worry. But preliminary data from China, I think we're quoting mortalities around 2%. Yeah, it seems to be fluctuating between 2 and 3% case fatality rates so far. The difficulty with that is what is your numerator and denominator? We know how many people die, but if the number of cases is really way more than what we're detecting, it may be that mortality is not as high. But regardless, the mortality from the flu is less than 0.1%. So this is significant. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not as bad as SARS that we saw in 2003 that had about a 10% mm-hmm. or MERS that had, can have a very high mortality, mm-hmm. but still very worrisome in that, uh, in that regard. So a lot of issues to consider. Right. We, need, we need a little bit more information, I think, to know how to, how to proceed. So I want to bring David Aldrich uh, onto the uh, onto the air now. And so David is joining us from, uh, he's in Adelaide, Australia. So it's very early in the morning there, right, David? Oh, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Right. But, but, but jet lag is my friend. All right. So I, wa- I want to, you know, you're, you're uh, involved with overseas study and, you know, you're halfway across the world. So, you know, what are your main concerns about, about this outbreak? And, um, you know, what, what kind of, uh, right. how, yeah, how are you sort of spending your time on it? 
Well, one thing is, uh, not my concerns, but the university's concerns, right before he went on the air, uh, the university, Indiana University, made an announcement saying that uh, uh, that the um, uh, travel to China for, for the university has now been shut down. So all the courses we have in China, they'll all be canceled or postponed. Um, except for emergency, tiring, extenuating circumstances. So obviously the university is very concerned, um, as are, I think, universities all around the world. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm taking this trip. I mean, I could see, you can feel, people were concerned uh, in L.A. before the flight left in Sydney when I landed, now here in L.A. You can feel there's a large concern. I think I think that uh, Dr. Herzmalis and John... Uh, really put their finger on, you know, in some ways we've seen this before. Dr. Ismail said, you know, we've had SARS, we've had other kinds of uh, uh, new diseases come. Uh, uh, what's, but we're in the stage right now where it's the uncertainty. That's what both John and Dr. Ismail emphasizes it. You know, they said we need more information, we need more information. And it's interesting how, uh, 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 compared to the, the number of, of just normal influenza cases you know this is minuscule at least in the united states right now but it's the flu has become almost normalized year after year after year we expect the flu the models uh uh, can predict how many people are likely to get the flu how many deaths are predicted uh there's uh of course vaccinations against it's all become kind of normalized and in some ways i think people become not immune to worrying about it but certainly a lot of people have and what's what makes this difference it's the uncertainty right nobody knows really and this is what uh, uh dr smallis and, and john and, and graham were, were all emphasizing nobody really knows uh, uh exactly about the transmission nobody knows about the um how how bad it is if you get infected uh, it's all too early to tell and in that sense it reminds me of uh of the early days after september 11th in 2001 where we knew something had changed, but there was just a lack of information, and and uh, uh, and it took some time for the world to respond uh, about how to best deal with with terrorist threats. And I think we're in a situation like that. So you've all sort of mentioned SARS and some of these Zika. How is the reaction to those different from now? Because I I can't recall the U.S. State Department ever saying do not travel to. Like, do not travel to China at all, the entire country. So how is the response similar or different to this? Do you want to talk about that, John? Uh, yeah, part of the issue there is, is it goes back to, to the idea that there's so much that's unknown. And in addition, the because a, a public health emergency has been declared of international concern, and because China has quarantined cities and they have canceled a lot of tra- internal travel, and they also their healthcare systems bursting at the seams. They have people there who have symptoms who have to ride bicycles for miles to try to get to a, a facility that works. And so, sending students into that particular uh, kind of situation would be would be a disaster. And so, or a potential disaster. And I think uh, because we don't know how fast and how far, right now the number of cases are, incre- are have exceeded now the number of cases of SARS, and we don't know where the end is in sight. And so, uh, you don't you don't do things that could potentially throw gas on the fire, so to speak. You you try to you try to wall that off a bit. And I think that's the big difference here. I- yeah. Did you want to say something? I was just, I was just going to say that yeah, I think, yeah, I think we need to kind of treat it as the precautionary principle. You know, until until the science can prove otherwise, you need to, to have these kind of measures, and that's why you're seeing this unprecedented response. And I feel like, uh, and 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 Dr. Tom here can can uh, confirm that I feel like we've dodged a lot of bullets over those last twenty period, uh, twenty years plus years uh, with Zika. You know that that kind of came out of nowhere and almost disappeared just as quickly in South America. Uh, MERS, luckily, just doesn't really seem to pass person to person very easily. And, you know, over eight years, we've only seen 2,500 cases. Uh, with SARS, you know, there were some really good control measures towards the end of that outbreak that really helped push that down. But it also, obviously, is less contagious than this virus. I mean, as, as you just said, we've already had more laboratory-confirmed cases of this new virus in seven weeks than we did in seven months of SARS. So that, I think, is the 
the big concern. Is this the next big one? I mean, pandemics have always been, you know, a matter, not a matter of if, but when. Um, we've always, we were overdue, I think, frankly, for some in human history. Luckily, I don't think this is the big one in terms of high mortality rate because we're not seeing that yet. But again, this is all based on really early epidemiological data from the uh, from China. And so those but, unknowns are there. But I think that's why you're mm-hmm. seeing this unprecedented uh, response globally. But one thing that's changed between these earlier um, infections or these earlier diseases when they hit and now, it is the extent of globalization. Uh, that's different. I mean, if you recall back to czars and many of the of these examples, uh, there were entire countries like Japan. I, I can't recall, but I know that there was a sense they're protected from it because they're, they were so isolated from contact with the rest of the world. This is now 20, 30 years ago. Um, they were very careful about who entered the country, who left, very careful uh, about uh, 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 interactions with populations and so on. And those days are long gone. I mean, that's what we know. That's what's changed is that the, the magnitude to which people are mobile, uh, they're moving around, they're interacting with each other. And so the, the, the hope, uh, short of maybe Antarctica, that somebody, somebody's mm-hmm. in a place where they're um, immune from or they're protected, insulated from uh, uh, the disease, I think probably that makes the, the, the transmission, it's going to be that much greater and faster. I think the other thing to consider is, you know, we always try and look at a little bit worst case scenarios, and the worst case scenario could be very bad. Um, hopefully that never happens. And as you pointed out with SARS, it certainly didn't. It, 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 but, you know, put it in perspective, you know, what Monroe County has 100,000 population. What if the attack rate is 10%? Then you have 10,000 ill individuals. What if 20% of those people need to be in the hospital? You have 2,000 people who need to be hospitalized. Well, that's five times the capacity of Bloomington Hospital. So people worry about that. And that may never come to be true, and it, but we don't know. And so we, in the back of our mind, are, are thinking, what are our resources in terms of facilities, providers, equipment, and could we take care of a worst-case scenario, hoping that that never happens? Mm-hmm. John? One of the things that uh, is important to also understand is conditions change. China, when SARS broke out, had less interconnectivity between its cities than it does now. And this outbreak uh, emanated from a, a transportation hub that over uh, that several million, well, 11 million people live there, and 3.5 million people or something like that go through each day on high-speed trains and then internal, and then 3,500 people fly from that city to international destinations every day. And so because we don't know so much, we, have, we don't really know how many people came in contact and might be carrying the disease and have gotten out. And that's different than if it occurs in some place that's more isolated than, than a transportation hub. <laughs> we, only have, we only have David uh, Aldrich on the air for another five minutes or so. So I want to go back to David and, and just ask about Indiana University and its, you know, its overseas study. How many, how many people could be affected by this in terms of either students, faculty, or staff that interact regularly with China? Um. You know what? I, I don't know the exact number okay, sure. because we're such a big university, multiple campuses, how many courses we have in China, how many people are traveling. But we know it's a big country with a lot going on. So there would easily be hundreds of people. Now, usually, I would also say, though, this is not, this is not at all new for us. Uh, uh, we see countries, typically, though, it'll be about safety issues. Um, it happened in Kenya a couple of years ago at, at SPIA, now the um, O'Neill School. We had a class scheduled for Kenya, and then just two weeks before it was due to, to, to go, it was placed on the, um, the, the watch list for, for, from the State Department, which means we don't go. And so we just had to scramble. And actually, the class ended up going to um, um, to one of the other countries. I think it was Uganda instead. So there'll be there'll be there'll be people affected in going to China. The interesting question is, what about all of the others? We're very proud. the 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 rankings just came out of universities. It just came out the other day, and uh, and we're one of the the highest ranked universities in terms of numbers of students going overseas. Um, 
I know uh, I, I, we haven't seen cancellations of other courses going to Europe or going to Africa, say, at this point. But I do know, going back to September 11th in 2001, what happened then was a lot of the programs just didn't go because there was so much uncertainty about safety and health issues. And frankly, students' families didn't want them to go. So it, it, it basically created a moratorium that, that year on, at least for us at SPIA, on, uh, on overseas programs. Can you, can you speak at all about uh, the, uh, the other side of the coin, uh, international students coming to IU and coming to the U.S.? Um, you know, it's uh, certainly students from China are now really caught in it. I mean, I could see this traveling. The people from China, the students from China, many of them studied in Australia, they were being taken off to the side, and uh, there's great concerns at IU about uh, to, to try to ensure that they're not uh, infected in, in some ways. I, I think in some ways, uh, if this, in, in this goes back to what Dr. Tom said, you know, it depends if it's towards the worst-case scenario or a bad-case scenario. I think we're going to see uh, fewer kids, fewer families being enthused about going overseas and fewer kids from overseas being interested in coming to to, to uh, a, a university like Indiana, to, to a, a, a university in the U.S., it, it's kind of a uh, uh, dampen the, the the interest and the enthusiasm for getting out of your own comfort zone because the lesson seems to be if you do this, it may kill you. And that's what we saw back at September 11th. Now, I would say, of course, that was irrational. Um, uh, most places were not being attacked. Places attacked were just really just a handful in the U.S., but the, the fear and the irrationality, is that spreads pretty fast. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, the, the yeah. risk perception of new fears. Right, yeah, and, and how, yeah, I guess I want to want you all to sort of address that. I mean, how fearful, is it just the unknown? Is that why we sh- why we're, people are so fearful? I think it's the unknown and, and <clears throat> um, the fact that it is a novel virus and you know, the 2014 Ebola uh, media response here in the U.S. when we had our first case was, was well overblown. Um, and in this case, um, this is a much different scenario, and I think we need to be a little bit more heightened alert uh, because of that. And uh, this clearly, while not anywhere near as serious as Ebola, uh, is clearly more uh, contagious. Uh, and we know we're already seeing, I think it's last I checked, 25 countries with imported cases. I think last I've counted, we've had local transmission in four countries outside of China already, um, whereas, you know, 2014 Ebola outbreak, that was two years. We had 10 imported cases in other countries, and that's a much easier pathogen to control. You know, we knew, you know, we, there's some, still some unknowns about Ebola, but we've been studying it since 1976, and we knew before that outbreak that you were not symptomatic before. Uh, you were infectious. And so the CDC uh, provided guidance for self-directive active monitoring, and that was, you know, that's your public health control. And that was pretty, that would be, in my opinion, if Ebola showed up again, we could thwart it very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's those unknowns with this virus that I have those concerns about. I want to, I'm going to let uh, David Aldridge go. I'd say thank you for joining us so early in the morning from over there in uh, Australia. We appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you. Thank, thanks for hosting such an important uh, show on such a such a, uh, uh, an important topic. All right. Well, thank you to to David Audrich, uh, a distinguished professor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. Safe travels, David. Thank you. We're going to take you. a we're going to take a short break now. We want to get you on the air for the second half of the program. We have some questions that have come in, so if you want to give us a call, eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, or toll free at one eight seven seven. Two eight five nine three four eight. You can also send questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also contact us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. 
It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUnews.org. It's kind of magic. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from WFIU and WTIU, along with News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And we are talking about the coronavirus today with uh, four experts. One of them was only on for the first half of the program. We have three who have stuck with us. Uh, John Parrish Sproul is the Director of Global Health Communication and Resource Center and Professor of Communications at Communications Studies at IUPUI. Graham McKean is Assistant University Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. And Dr. Tom Rismalis is an MD with the IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians, and he specializes in infectious disease. If you have questions or comments, we will take your calls at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And Sarah has some questions, I think. Yeah, you know we've had the one case in Porter County that could or could not be the coronavirus. So this is um, about that. The Twitter question, do you think the media should not report a case until it is actually confirmed? Speaking recently of the quarantined individual in Porter County who's not, whose test results are not back yet, but it was breaking news two days ago. In my opinion, the media should report and there are a variety of reasons why it should do so. First of all, because things can unfold and unfold rapidly. You want to begin to, to let people know that there's something coming down the pike. In other words, you wouldn't wait until the tornado was right outside your door before you announced that there might be one coming. And and I think that's that's the first issue. The the second is is that well, the first death is the first death identified. That doesn't mean it was the first death. There could have been other people who died or sick who didn't make it to the hospital or we don't know about yet. That, that's simply the, the process of, of public health and physicians trying to catch up with, with the rate at which a virus spreads. The, the part of the, the difficulty is, is that when we report in the media, the, the knowledge base is a moving target. As was pointed out, we need more information, but information becomes outdated as we learn more. And people need to, to think about the notion of media literacy and consider that was yesterday's news, this is today's news. And it's very much like polls of political candidates, you know, from day to day or week to week, it changes and our knowledge of what we know about the virus changes. And the media can help us keep up to date with that. But we also have to make sure that we recognize that as we talk with our friends, that we may have yesterday's information and today's information may supersede that. And I think there's always going to be that tension, but I think it will be a mistake not to report. It is rapidly changing. I mean, just mm-hmm. prepping for today. Um, another question. Would you explain to listeners influenza deaths versus coronavirus deaths in the same period and also any age-related factors? Dr. Tom? Well, the I mean, the for each influenza season, each influenza epidemic, uh, the attempts are made to calculate how serious or dangerous that epidemic might be. Traditionally, seasonal influenza has a very low mortality. It tends to affect the elderly uh, mostly. Uh, The mortality is less than 0.1%, substantially less than that most years. Uh, We did have in 2009 H1N1 uh, influenza epidemic that did seem to have a higher mortality and affect children more than adults. And if you go back historically, looking at influenza pandemics, there were some, the the, the traditional 1918 influenza pandemic may have had mortalities that approached 1% or 2%, which is substantially higher than typical seasonal influenza. Now, as as we said before, this virus, what is the mortality associated with it? I mean, it may be 2 or 3%, or it may be that our uh, denominators are inaccurate, and it's less than that. But we're, you know, we're, we we need to know that. Obviously, makes a lot of difference in how you manage this. I just wanted to make one other comment about these ty- the questions from the the public is that um, from a healthcare standpoint, uh, 
we're sort of on the receiving end of a lot of these calls and questions. So people see this, they read about it, and they worry. Um, and so we've already had calls, um, I have a cough, I have a fever, you know, I didn't travel to China, but I traveled to Washington State. I mean, you know, and it, it creates issues. One of the things from a, from a treatment standpoint, from a medical standpoint, that we need as fast as possible is availability of testing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, people show up, this is cough, cold, and flu season. And they come in with all kinds of respiratory symptoms. And if we don't have any way to definitively tell what you have, we're sort of in limbo. And we can test for influenza. And if we have a positive test, we can say, ah, oh, you have the flu. But many viruses are similar in their early manifestations. And so um, I know the CDC is working on it. They usually get their tests set up, and then they distribute it to the state boards of health. And then we can get faster access to those that's an excellent point uh, on the testing end and how, yeah. how uh, that's becoming a huge problem. I mean, the, the numbers that we're seeing out of China, those are laboratory-confirmed cases. And with it being a novel virus, which, again, is, is a new virus that's never been seen um, in humans or animals or, or, or um, detailed scientifically, um, you've got to give some credit to the, the Chinese scientists who in one week were able to isolate this virus, identify, post the structure of it, develop a serological test. And, and so that took some time to do so you could get these laboratory-confirmed cases. And just like uh, the situation we're in now, in the United States, we only have we only had one lab in the CDC that can that can perform this test right now. And so I just looked. We have 121 pending tests at that lab. The test is only a four to six hour test, but we're you know we got this big backlog now. And so that was the problem in China, and that's why you, when they started developing expand testing, you started to see the numbers go up. Um, and, and I know the FDA has basically waived their regulations and and saying this is an urgent need to develop a commercial product and get this out. And, and last I've checked with the CDC and the state, uh, the, those tests should be available to states within about two weeks. Um, but that that becomes a big problem. When you go back to the question from uh, the, the audience member, very early uh, epidemiological data here, but it's looking about 80% of cases or so being considered as mild or, or less less severe than mild even, and, and about 20 being more severe. Um, it looks like all ages are at risk, but it's really uh, more severe for elderly and immunocompromised, just like any most uh, infectious disease when we talk about uh, highly susceptible populations. I think one of the things that's important, and I think it's, it's key when there's a lot of misunderstanding about what people are going to gain from the healthcare system when they contact uh, the, the, their their clinic and say, "I have symptoms," and it's good that they're they're checking out that they have symptoms, but they also have to recognize those symptoms can can represent a range of of, of ailments and. Some diseases like influenza are vaccine preventable or at least vaccine attenuated because it can lessen the severity and there's other advantages to taking the vaccine for people who have other kinds of conditions. But for something like the coronavirus, we don't have a vaccine yet. And so part of the reason we want to contain is because we don't know what we're going to be able to do with it or not. There's a lot of unknowns. And so not only do they need to be able to test, but they also needed information rapidly about the nature of this and and what what the potential is. And we have a lot more of a handle in some respects on influenza than we do on a, on a brand new virus, and and so uh, we and we have some predictability there. So when you have the symptoms, it's good to contact your healthcare worker, but you also have to recognize then your healthcare worker has to do investigative work uh, before they know uh, how to proceed with treatment. Mm-hmm. And currently, the case definition, uh, unless it changed while we've been in here, um, for it to authorize a test still includes travel uh, to Wuhan or Hubei province within the last 14 days or known contact with a person under investigation for the virus or a lab-confirmed case. So that's, I think that's a problem, too. Mm-hmm. So, for example, currently at you know, IU Health offices, if someone come, every patient who comes in is asked, have they been traveling in the last 21 days? And then if they say yes, then they are asked where were they traveling, were they traveling to Wuhan? And then if they have cough and fever... And so uh, that definition is what's being used. It may not be adequate, and it may need to be changed over time, because a lot of cases are not occurring in just that isolated geographic area anymore. Mm -hmm. I want to ask, just uh, all of you have said we we need more information. There's a lot of unknowns here. Is part of that because this is in China and they've not been as transparent in the past with information? I think the you know the world kind of slapped them on the wrist after SARS. I think 
there's there's some truth to that, um, but also it is just that new in this rapid develop uh, rapid development. And, and again, the scientists over there were, did an amazing job within that week to start start doing some of that groundwork to help us. And and so they posted the viral structure for others to start looking at. And now we've seen labs in Australia, uh, Hong Kong, and I think some others now where they're actually being able to grow the virus from the patient. So that's that's critical and key in terms of developing treatments or vaccine. Now I think we're still optimistically maybe a year plus away from a widespread deployment of a vaccine, um, but. Uh, you know, I, th- I think that's part of it. And, and honestly, you really need the epidemiological data to do the work. And the CDC has not been on the ground in China yet. And I think that's hampering our efforts. John? Yeah. In fact, related to that, one of the particular difficulties in this case is, is China hasn't always been transparent in the past. And that's been true not only for infectious diseases, but also for, for they've had two major vaccine scandals in the last uh, few years uh, where they were giving out safe, uh, unsafe or ineffective vaccines to people. And so there's a, there's a great degree of mistrust there that makes it then difficult to move quickly on, on these kinds of situations. And so uh, that that degree of transparency uh, is greater this time than it's been in the past, but that doesn't mean that the population necessarily accepts that. Mm-hmm. I want to invite our uh, listeners to call in if you have a question about the coronavirus issues. You can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, Dr. Tom Rismalis, I didn't mean to cut you off if you were. No, I was just going to comment about uh, some of the other points that were made. And with respect, for example, to vaccine development and so forth, you know, we have new technology now that allows us to develop vaccines much quicker than we did in the past, but it still takes months. And the only comment I would make about that is this is the third coronavirus outbreak, you know, that we've had in the past 18 years. And after SARS, vaccines were developed, but then shelved because it wasn't needed anymore. And so we need to have some persistence of realizing that I think coronaviruses, and there probably are many others, may cause other epidemics, and we need to persist with that. And uh, either develop treatments or vaccines. Yeah, We should talk a little bit just about what it is. I mean, I know you all have said coronavirus pneumonia, so is it just similar That's to how that? it was first described uh, when the, the WHO, I think China alerted the WHO on um, New Year's Eve, and so it was just a, a, un, a, a pneumonia of unknown origin, I think is how it was originally described. But it presents like the cold or the flu, and so that's that's the, the problem. So coronaviruses in general, there are, there are many types of coronaviruses. There are probably, I think, nine types that typically infect humans. Three, SARS, MERS, and this novel coronavirus are the ones we've seen that have been most worrisome. But the other six or so types just cause the common cold Mm, and are very mild illnesses, and we've had them here Mm. forever. Okay. Um, But I think it does go back. You know, that could have been a lesson learned globally after SARS, and it's, you know, the continued, you know, changes in land use and expansion of agricultural development and things like that. And so the more that we, you know, change the environment and change land and decrease biodiversity and and continue to to have things like these wet markets where we're mixing wild animals and humans together, uh, we're only going to continue to have more spillover. So I think that's the big lesson globally. We got another question. Um, Can this virus mutate? How will we know if it's changing? No. Well, um, <laughs> the virus can mutate, but it appears that it does not mutate quickly like, for example, the influenza uh, virus does, where we have different strains and different uh, versions each year. Um, uh, so these viruses oftentimes have adapted to a particular mammalian host. So there are coronaviruses that infect horses, cows, uh, camels, ferrets, bats, and so forth. And some of these would be transmissible to humans, and some of them would be transmissible between humans and humans. And we don't really know until one of these events happens. Mm-hmm. I think it's with the big three right now, those beta coronaviruses. Um, I think mm-hmm. the predominant theory is all um, bats being the natural host and then intermediate hosts between a bat and a mammal and then humans. And to so bring it to humans. With SARS, it was palm civets, which are little cat-like animals. Um, through, the, I think, the uh, horseshoe bat in China. Uh, with MERS, it's believed it's bats via camels, via humans. Mm. There's been, it's completely unconfirmed, but some studies that maybe bat 
to snake to humans in this case. Uh, So you mentioned earlier that there may have been the first human-to-human That was confirmed yesterday. That was confirmed? By the CDC. Yeah. So is that a game changer? We've – and, you know, we've been planning – you know, you plan in general, but we've been planning specifically for this um, since early January. And that was kind of one of our trigger points and scenarios of things to look out for. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, that was that was a game changer, uh, and I think the biggest game changer was the confirmation this morning of of being uh, being able to transmit it asymptomatically. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, well, I know, and you know, the flu can transmit what, a day to two days before, and that's something we do not know with this virus. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you have an additional. No, just from a practical standpoint, though, if you have only risk of transmission when people are symptomatic, you can identify the patients, you can isolate those patients and prevent transmission. When you don't know if someone's ill and they can transmit, that that changes how you approach it. Um, You almost have to be very careful with anyone who has had contact with a known case, even though they're asymptomatic. Mm And that creates a lot of problems. You know, when when SARS was evolving and there were all these cases up in Canada and Toronto and so forth, they attempted to home isolate contacts of cases and because they didn't really understand the transmission at that point. And it was interesting. It, it seemed to fail miserably. Um, <laughs> the people who were under isolation were found at movie theaters and grocery stores and, and so forth. So, you know... Those are all issues. Yeah, that speaks right. to that globalization. We didn't know what it was, and somebody got on a plane uh, with that with SARS and flew to Canada before their incubation period. And uh, I think that that's you know you could be anywhere in the world, uh, the most remote village in the world, within 36 hours, and that's shorter than the incubation period for many viruses. In China, they're they're making it so there's like curfews, and you can only go out for. What, I mean, we still have about 60 million uh, on lockdown. Um, yeah, throughout, yeah which is interesting in the sense that, you know, you know how valuable is that type of quarantine? Um, the the fact is, I think unfortunately in this situation, a lot of people had already traveled, had already left by the time they tried to institute something of that sort. And in fact, some people have even suggested that maybe it encouraged people to leave, fearful that they may be quarantined. So, did it help or not? I don't know. I think the mayor of Wuhan even said that uh, he was, cannot account for 5 million of the 11 million in that city, uh, yeah. that, which is now the former mayor of Wuhan. Yeah, qu- quarantine's always difficult. I mean, one of the problems we had with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa was is that people uh, tried hard to, to defy quarantines. And, and, and in this case, that you have a, a very deadly uh, virus uh, with the uh, Ebola virus disease. And, and so certainly when you have uh, a situation where most people don't seem to have any illness, and, and, and whether they – maybe because they're asymptomatic or maybe because they're not infected, it's really hard for them to accept that I can't run to the grocery store, that I can't go uh, get gas in my car, I can't – you know, et cetera. And so it's, it's a really difficult thing to enforce on a population, particularly populations that have – uh, like the United States, they have a healthy sense of I'll do what I want to do uh, for the same reason that people stay behind when they order evacuations for hurricanes and so mm-hmm. forth. They're going to do the same thing. And so quarantine is is on paper a great option, but in practice it's, it's usually a pretty messy business. Mm-hmm. We've got time. If somebody wants to call in, I'll give you the numbers one more time, 812-855-0811 or toll-free 1-877-285-9348. News at IndianaPublicMedia.org and at Noon Edition. So I have to ask just sort of on a real basic level, um, how can people protect themselves? Dr. Rasmalis, what should people do if they want to have the best chance of staying healthy uh, through the flu season, whether it's the coronavirus or influenza or whatever? Certainly. I mean, it's always uh, difficult. We we, uh, uh, advise patients about just general hygiene Washing, we don't, you know, we presume that this is largely transmitted by respiratory root, coughing droplets, aerosols, and so forth. But we, it may well be transmitted by contact with surfaces and things as well. So hand washing is important. And uh, uh, individuals who may be at increased risk of more serious complications, uh, the, uh, the chronically ill, should be vaccinated against uh, influenza. 
which is, you know, that in and of itself is an issue. We're, we're, we do a poor job in vaccinating adults against many things. Uh, but it helps with the, not only with preventing illness, it helps with the confusion that we arrive at when we're dealing with these type of epidemics. Mm-hmm. We want as few sick people as possible so we don't have to find the needle in the haystack. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what, do you know what the rate is for flu vaccination in Indiana? Um, the vaccination in individuals over age 65 is probably, what, 60%, something like that, I would guess. Yeah. I was just curious because it seems like right now, if there were a vaccination for coronavirus, people would be lining up. And yeah, yeah, it, when you yeah. look at the numbers, well, you're much more likely to get the flu. It goes back yeah. to that risk perception, I think, yeah. and, the, and the perception of new risk. And we get this question all the time in public health, or there's a new disease or a new outbreak of something. What can I do to protect? And it's always the same thing. Mm-hmm. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Uh, stay away from people that are sick. Isolate yourself if you are sick. You know, do not share cups, drinks, utensils, vape pens. You know, whatever. Uh, and so it's always those tried and true prevention measures, and that is across the board for what we know with all infectious disease. And you know, of course, there's some like measles that could maybe be transported, transmitted via airborne. Uh, but it's it's really all those same messages. And so that's our same message with this virus. It does not change anything, in my, in my opinion, in terms of what we should be doing uh, for our own personal protections. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a phone call, I think, right? Your pardon? Yeah, we got, we've got a phone call. We're going to take a phone call from uh, Jericho. Yeah. Hi. 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 Um, I read that there was, like, a research facility that studies infectious diseases in Wuhan. Is it possible that this was some kind of an outbreak from that, or do we know for sure that it was from the animals? Uh, I have heard that conspiracy theory. There is a, um, uh, a laboratory in Wuhan that does study infectious disease. There is no indication that that was the origin. And we don't really need, um, you know, things to be weaponized in the lab. The animals are doing that for us. Um, and, and I think uh, that that is unlikely. It does seem, at least based on what we've been able to do on the ground, I say we globally, mm-hmm. um, uh, we've, we think it's linked to that, that animal market. Yeah, I would agree. And, and in addition, there are many other biological weapons which would be potentially a lot more deadly, a lot more deadly than this. It's important to note that virtually everybody who advocates for vaccines, which would be the entire International Pediatric Association, the American Medical Association, virtually all of the people who are advocating vaccines get vaccinated. So if there really was some kind of conspiracy, they would be doing that to themselves. And I, and I think it's telling that, that, the very, that they're, they're, not, they're doing that and they're asking you to do the same thing. How do you think this might affect other sort of global events as we're looking ahead towards the Olympics? I mean, I mm-hmm. probably need, it probably wouldn't matter how long this is active in a thing, but well, it's it, it's it's a it's part of an ongoing issue. There are a lot of people globally, whether it's WHO, whether it's uh, International Pediatric Association, or other such organizations, are pushing hard for people to get vaccinated in terms of whether it's your basic vaccination schedule for infants or whether it's flu vaccine for. Uh, for adults, um, they, they're really pushing hard because uh, there's a significant, tremendous uh, advantage to all of us being vaccinated. And, and going along with that, WHO and, and others have sponsored uh, the growth in, in, in facilities that can manufacture influenza vaccine around the world so that we have enough doses for people. And, but that, we can't sustain that industry because of the fragility of those unless people actually get the vaccine. And so you get the vaccine in part for yourself, but you also get it for your children and your grandparents and your friends and your neighbors. And, uh, and because there is globalization and because there is so much traffic, you have to recognize that that's not just a U.S. problem uh, or it's not just a problem in Zimbabwe or it's not just a problem in Malawi. It's, if, it, if it happens someplace, it's a problem for the whole planet. And, and so it is important that we uh, get good information and that people get vaccinated in all the appropriate ways. It makes a huge difference. Oh, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's appropriate to really speculate um, right now on, on the length and severity of it, obviously. And I think we really need to know the, the attack rate 
of the pathogen, um, and that'll kind of tell us, maybe give us an idea if this does go widespread, how many people could potentially be impacted, maybe how long this might be. Uh, but again, you know, if, if we do these tight public health control measures, once we learn more about this virus, at least in, in developing areas that have the systems to in place these things, uh, to implement these things, I think, um, you know, that, that might give us a, an advantage there. But uh, just so much yet to be seen. We only have about two minutes to go in the program. So if, if there's any last thought uh, that you can you can give us that would maybe allay some fears out there, um, help people to stay safe? Well, not immediately to allay fears, okay. but, <laughs> but uh, we, did, we have received a few phone calls of, at our office about treatments. And uh, there isn't any approved treatment for coronaviruses. There are experimental therapies, and there are things that were tried with SARS, and there are antiviral drugs that are, that are FDA-approved for other, for other illnesses that have been tried. And there may be some benefit to those, but there isn't any established uh, treatment regimen. Okay. John? I think that uh, what people want, I would hope people would think about is, is that rather than wait for treatment, it's best to prevent. And, and, and so we buy insurance not because we want to use it and get our money's worth, but precisely because if something does happen, we want to be there, we want to protect it. And, and, but it, what we really want to do is not do it at all. And, and so um, the, do the kinds of hygiene things that were talked about and, and take care of yourself and get vaccinated for the diseases that you can. And that's the best you can do for yourself. All right. We're out of time. I want to thank our guests today, John Parrish Sproul, Graham McKean, and Dr. Tom Rismalis. For Sarah Whitmire, my co-host, producer Benta Boutier, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at Smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at HeraldTimesOnline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.